It has been an absolute privilege, but we're not done, and we got a fun text to be in this morning. But as we kind of get in there, I just want you guys to think about the journey for just a second that we've been on, right? Friday night as we came in and kind of talked about the theme for the week, we really watched Jesus define what it means to love God 100%. Uh, and he gave us the spark notes of the Old Testament. And he said, if you want to know uh, in, in a couple words what that means, it's love God and love neighbor. And we have spent the entire time together so far really just diving into one of those. What does it mean to love God with all our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength? Now, a verse that you guys probably have set to memory. And we saw that lived out. We saw it lived out in a lot of different ways, positive and negative. Last night, we saw one of the Supreme examples of that in the New Testament in Mary, in this woman who demonstrates her incredible devotion to her Savior in an unlikely place. But there's an additional component to Jesus' definition, and it would be unfortunate if we left this place only talking about loving God because it's only half of the definition for Jesus. He says to love God fully encompasses something else. It means that we're going to love others as well. We're going to love our neighbor. And I want to walk you through this story again in Luke chapter 10. I want to invite you to turn there. It's a parable that if you haven't heard it, you've actually probably heard it. It's one of the most famous parables in all the New Testament. Famous inside the church and probably even more famous outside of the church. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, We get laws from this parable about being Good Samaritans. It's a famous text in so many different ways, but it comes from the Scriptures. Luke chapter 10 Starting here in verse 25, we're going to see yet another interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, and he's going to turn their entire world once again upside down as he was so familiar with and so used to doing. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, let's read that. It says, now a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now, we've been down this road a little bit before. A lawyer was maybe the same word that we would use for scribe. We've met one of these individuals. In fact, we met him on Friday night. As a reminder, a lawyer is an expert in the law. As we talk about their law, not like legal law, but the law of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They called that the first five books of their Old Testament, or the Torah, or the Torah. He was an expert in the law specifically of God. Uh, We're talking about like a a Harvard law professor. I mean, this is a big boy. This boy knows his stuff. Uh, He knows the law. This is his job. And not only was that his job to kind of be an expert in the law, as a belief system, he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee, by the way, isn't a position. It's something that you believe, right? It's like a Democrat or Republican. That's not a position. But if you tell me kind of what side of the aisle that you're in, you're, you're saying, I, I kind of adhere to the tenets of, of this belief system, right? A Pharisee would have been the same. This guy would have been an expert in the law as well as a Pharisee, which meant he's a leader. He is very highly respected and influential in his community. And as a result, he had a very high view of God. He believed as a Pharisee that the Bible should be applied, it should be read, it should be lived out in every aspect of life. Does that sound familiar? Like, we like this guy. This guy would love coming to Heartland, right? High view of the Word of God, we should read it, it should change our lives, and we should live that out. And of all the groups in the Old Testament, or rather the New Testament, uh, of the religious groups that, that we talk about, They actually were the most closely aligned with the belief system of Jesus in a lot of ways. They were conservative in their view of the law. Uh, Sometimes these guys get a bad rap, right? Jesus says in 
Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. Now, he's not speaking to the entire group of people, but there was a certain smaller group within the Pharisees that certainly were hypocrites, and Jesus rails against that. But it's not all of them. In fact, if you remember Friday night, it was actually the scribe that said to Jesus, hey, maybe God doesn't want just this mere religious behavior modification. Maybe what he doesn't want is just like sacrifices and offerings with the wicked heart. Maybe what he actually wants is my heart. And Jesus said to that guy, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You get it. You're beginning to understand. This is the same type of individual. So their overall view as a Pharisee, as a lawyer, this guy that we see put on stage by Luke in verse 25, he's a conservative. He wants to take the Bible and he wants to apply it in life. But here's the problem. There's this guy by the name of Jesus that's come along. And based on where we know Jesus is at, he's probably around 30 years of age at this point. He's very young compared to the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day. And he had a terrible habit. He had a terrible habit of saying, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said in the law of Moses, do not commit adultery, but I say, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Five different times in the Sermon on the Mount, you hear Jesus say, I know what Moses says, but I actually am greater than Moses. You have heard it said, but I say. Now, this would have made a Pharisee furious. How dare you claim authority over Moses, over the book of the the Bible that I am most familiar with, and my goal is to preserve it and to teach it and show it to others. So let this be a mind blow for you for just a second. If the Pharisees viewed themselves as conservatives, they viewed Jesus as a, say the word with me, liberal. Does that blow your categories just a little bit? That's how they saw Jesus, this young 30-year-old, in their estimation, arrogant man for placing himself above the law of Moses. So this Pharisee, this, this scribe, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks him a question, right? Uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the purpose of the lawyer's question is twofold. Number one, it very clearly says he's trying to put Christ to the test. Where do you fit? I'm trying to figure out, man, are you friend? Are you foe? What category do you fit in? Are you on my team? Because I don't know. Uh, But these debates that these individuals would have followed, by the way, a very formal script. There was a way that you would have dialogues as religious leaders, right? A very formal culture, Uh, was Jesus in the the days that he lived in, and you simply didn't deviate from that norm. And as they're having this conversation, you need to understand this isn't a private conversation, right? They're not alone. More than likely, as this scribe or this lawyer and Jesus are talking, there's an audience around them, probably in the synagogue where they would learn things, or more than likely in Jerusalem, but they're watching this dialogue transpire, right? This was their entertainment. I know it sounds wild, uh, but they didn't have TikTok. They didn't have, you know, Pinterest or whatever to occupy their, their minds. This was fun for them. They would watch religious scholars debate the things of the law, and that's actually how they would learn. So this lawyer is saying, hey, whose team are you on? Are you shirts or are you skins? I, I need to know if you're a Cowboys fan or a 49ers fan, if I can like you or if I need to hate you, right? That's what he's trying to figure out. And he's also establishing the rules of this debate, okay? And here's how it would go. This host scribe, the lawyer, right? He's on his turf. Here's how this would work. He would ask the visiting teacher, in this case, Jesus, a general question about God. And then the the visiting teacher, in this case, Jesus, would give a very general answer about God. 
then the host scribe would then offer now a more specific question about the things of God. And then the, or the, the visiting rabbi or Jew, whoever was there, would then give a more specific answer about the things of God. And this debate would go back and forth, and so they whittled down, and they basically found common ground. And that was the idea. In these dialogues, what you were trying to do was to maintain honor, right? To find out where do we agree? How can we see maybe the nuances of the law differently? But that's the idea. And then once the host scribe was comfortable, having said, okay, I've asked you all my questions, then he would hand the ball to Jesus. And then Jesus would get to start answering or asking his own questions, okay? So I want you to think about that. Jesus now in verse 25 has just been asked a question. And in this very formal, very kind of scripted dialogue, what should Jesus do next? If he's just been asked a question, he should what? Answer the question. Look at verse 26. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? you got to love Jesus. I get to make my own rules. I'm God. So instead of following your very scripted debate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of rock the boat right out of the gate. So he asked the lawyer a question about the law. This is very safe, right? Um, this is like asking a sailor about the sea. Look, yeah, I know everything about that. This is a very comfortable question. So in verse 27, the lawyer now answers the question according to this patterned debate. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound familiar? It's what we studied night one. Love God 100% with all you are, and then he adds to it as we heard Friday night, and love your neighbor as yourself. He gives the spark notes version of the Old Testament, love God and love neighbor. And again, he's trying to find common ground with Jesus, and he gives a very safe answer. Now at this point, what should happen? Remember, this is a scripted conversation. Jesus has now assumed control. He has the ball. He should now ask a question. Verse 28, watch what he does. And Jesus now said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and live. Okay, boy, Jesus is just not playing by the rules here, is he? Now, I want you to notice this is incredible. Watch what Jesus does. He's basically said to this scribe, this expert in the law, with all of these people around watching this dialogue happen, if you'll just love God 100% of the time, with everything you have, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind and your strength, and if you'll love your neighbor like you love yourself, you will inherit eternal life. Now, what's the problem here? The lawyer realizes he is now in between a rock and a hard place. If he says, well, I kind of haven't done that. Jesus, I haven't loved God that way all the time in every moment of my life. He can't say that. Why? Because he would shame himself in front of everyone around and say, I'm not, I'm not the guy that you put on this religious pedestal. I'm actually not that person. But if he says, well, I, I clearly have done that. I am really impressive. I love, that, I love God that way all the time. And I love my neighbor that way every moment of every day. What are they going to say? You're a dirty liar. We know you. You can't say yes to either one of those. Do you see the beauty of what Jesus is doing here? Literally, this guy, in two verses, two questions from Jesus, is literally between a rock and a hard place. This is beautiful how Jesus does this. And this guy is desperate to save face, desperate to maintain his honor in front of all of his peers. And I want you to watch now what he does. The lawyer now responds and says, but he, 
desiring now to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he realizes, boy, I'm in a difficult spot, and I now need to save face, so I'm going to ask a question that I know the answer to, and if Jesus now will follow in this pattern, then he'll ask that question back to me. I will like watermelon knock this thing out of the park, because that's like a softball question for me. I'll crush it, and everyone around will go, oh yeah, the lawyer indeed is brilliant. He was in a tough spot there for just a second, but he kind of wiggled his way out of it. So he thinks he's basically throwing himself a question that Jesus is going to ask back to them. Now, by the way, this issue of neighbor, again, was a, was a watermelon, underhanded pitch. Jews had debated this question, who is my neighbor, forever. They all knew the answer to that. And the core of who is my neighbor was simply this. Your neighbor was your fellow Jew. People that look like me, people that talk like me, people that believe like me, people that live near to me, that's my neighbor. It was a very, very small circle. If you don't believe in my God, if you worship a different God, if you have different um, practices in life, you weren't my neighbor. I am only responsible to love this very small group of people. So they've taken the law and said, this is what it means now to apply it. And again, this is his, his idea. I'm going to justify myself. So he's narrowed that down to the, the smallest circle of people in his life. Right? It would be like us at school saying, hey, uh, I'm a jock, so I only have to love jocks. Right, the musicians, I'm not required to love them. Or, hey, I'm an academic, I'm a nerd. Uh, I don't have to love those weirdo jock people. Right? They smell and have stinky feet. Uh, I don't have to love them. They're different from me. So they have kind of based their life on these cliques or these little circles. And instead, now again, of giving the scribe an opportunity to justify himself, which is desperately what he wanted, Christ deviates now a third time in this story. And he actually tells the story. Look at this in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Don't you love Jesus? Now he's going to tell a story. Sweet. Like, I love stories. And it's a crime story, right? There's, a, there's trauma, and there's intrigue, and there's a beating, and there's robbers. Like, this is, this is fun. And I want you to see how Jesus intros this story. He says, there's this man. What do we know about this man? Nothing. It's very vague, very little. And now think about from the, the position of the scribe, of the lawyer, he's trying to understand the story. Who is this guy? Is this guy that was jumped, is he, a, is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? He's trying to answer the question, is he my neighbor? Is this someone that I am called to love? And it says he was on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, one of the, one of the most treacherous roads uh, in the Middle East. This was a 17-mile-long road that went uh, 3,300 feet down, uh, and it was known to be a place where you would regularly get jumped by robbers. Lots of caves, lots of rough terrain. People would hide out. They knew that people of stature would be traveling this road and, and probably by themselves. And it was a great place if you wanted to, to jump somebody, basically to, to beat them. And that's exactly in the story what has happened. And we find out this man, this unknown man, has been beaten, stripped, and robbed. And by the way, when we hear the word stripped, uh, in our context, it doesn't mean completely naked, right? What it means is they have taken his outer garment, which is of value, but they've left this kind of long, white, linen bathrobe that they would have worn underneath. It's essentially like our underwear. Nobody wants to wear someone else's underwear, right? That's just weird. So, like, that's not valuable. You leave that, but the outer garment, that was actually supposed to be funny. Thank you. Uh, the outer garment was worth money, and it also would have told you 
who you are by the way that you dress, right? Oh, you identify with this group of people? You're clearly a Jew. Based on your dress, you're not a Jew. That sort of thing. So we don't know, right? And Luke, as he writes this, says he's half dead. Now remember, Luke's a physician. So that word half dead means something. And what it means is this. He's unconscious. He can't respond. He can't speak. I don't know if he speaks Hebrew. Is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? I don't know. Do you see what Jesus is doing in the story? There's a man, and I'm not going to let you know who he is, but he is clearly in need. He's half dead. He's you know, unconscious. He's clearly been beaten. You know that this man is in need. And this whole time, this lawyer is desperately trying to answer the question, is he my neighbor? Am I responsible for this individual? And the lawyer simply cannot tell. And now Jesus is going to up the ante, and he's going to add another character to this drama. Look at verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now when we hear the word priest, we think, sweet, right? This is like Aaron. These are like really important dudes in the Old Testament. They're religious leaders. They know the Word of God. They love the Lord. So surely... A Jewish priest is going to save the day, probably coming from Jerusalem where he was doing his job as a priest and going back home to Jericho. And he would have been expected to render aid. At least that's what the characters or the people hearing the story thought. But what does it say? He didn't do that, did he? He passed by on the other side, probably for two reasons. One, he maybe is scared of being the next victim, right? If you walked up on a victim and thought, oh boy, this guy is clearly like freshly beaten. The robbers are probably still around. I'm out. Like, I don't want any part of this. And secondly, if he were to go up to this man and touch him, he potentially could become unclean as well, which would mean now he's got to go back home. He's got to go through this whole cleansing process. He can't do his job right now. It's kind of a pain. So I know this guy needs help, but I'm going to walk around him on the other side. Then verse 32, we get yet another character. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, same idea. The Levite was like the JV priest in a way, kind of like Nadab and Abihu in that sense, the, the, the sons of Aaron, kind of what they did. So again, religious people, very respected in the community. The Jewish audience listening to this said, absolutely, I would expect this man to stop and render aid. He knows the law, he knows the heart of God, but what does he do? The exact same thing as the priest does. He simply walks around. So, so far in this story, again, to a Jewish audience, We've seen a priest, okay, one of the highest realms of the religious stratosphere in Israel. Then we've seen a Levite, okay, the next rung down, very respected, uh, but not as high as the priest, but a man that we would expect to stop and render aid. At this point in the story, Jesus is going to introduce a third character. And based on what we've seen so far, what the hearers would expect for Jesus to introduce is like a regular, everyday Jew, just like you and me. Right? Someone who practices, who follows God, who loves the Lord. That's kind of the next logical step in this story. But that is not what Jesus does. Look in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Luke introduces what would have been to the hearers a shocking element to the story. If you know anything about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, it is not a good one. The Samaritans were a people that believed in the God of Israel, but basically they had intermarried with pagan people who did not love God. And as a result, the Jews said, I don't care for like half-brothers. 
we're done with you. We want nothing to do with you. It'd be as if, uh, I would say in, in, in my worldview, a 49er fan stopped and rendered A, like, how dare you? Where's the Cowboys fan? That's the person that we expect to see in the story. Right? In maybe a non-humorous way, let me paint it in a very real and very honest way. It would be as if we heard, and as this person is laying there, a black man in 1950s America stops to render aid to a member of the Ku Klux Klan. That's the tension that these people would have felt. That's the shock that they would have said, wait a second, you're telling me that a Samaritan stopped and rendered aid to this unknown individual, not knowing if he was a Jew or a Gentile, this is a shocking discovery in your story. It's like person number one is like your youth pastor. You're like, oh yeah, he's respected. That Clearly my youth pastor is going to, oh no, he didn't. Oh second, oh there's my counselor. They, they, they love the Lord. They know the things. They're maybe not employed by the church, but these people love Jesus. They're my robot. Oh, wait a second. They didn't, they didn't render aid either. That's the tension that they're feeling as this man now is introduced as the hero of this story. And I want you to notice what the Samaritan does in verse 34. He doesn't just feel something. Remember, compassion, according to Jesus, always leads to action. It's not just a feeling. So in verse 34, he went to him, he bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of them. All three men see this individual in need. Two actually come to the place of where he is, and only one does anything about it because he feels compassion. He bandages his wounds, which means he touched him, would have become unclean in that process. He pours oil and wine on him. That's essentially like band-aids and neosporin. That's what they had in that day and age. All things that the priest and the Levite, by the way, would have had with them probably on their journey. He puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, and not only that, he picks up the tab. Look at verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Here's a down payment. I have no idea who this guy is. Here's payment for the first two nights of his stay here. You take care of him. And when I come back, I'll just give you my MasterCard. And whatever else this guy owes, whatever service that you need to render to him as the innkeeper, I will take care of it. It's a beautiful picture of what man actually shows compassion. And Jesus now, finishing this story, turns back to the lawyer, and he asks the question that the lawyer started with, right? He says to him in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? There's an amazing contrast here in the responses. The lawyer initially asked, how small can I make my circle? How limiting can I make the people that fit in there that I have to love in that way? And what Jesus is saying, you're asking it all wrong. It's not a question of exclusivity. It's a question of inclusivity. Jesus is saying, how many people can you actually fit in your circle? How many people can you invite in? How many people can you show this type of love to? Who can you be a neighbor to is Jesus' answer. And the idea of what Jesus is saying is anyone and everyone that you come in contact with, whether they're a Jew, whether they're a Gentile, whether they're a Samaritan, it doesn't matter. They are, if you have the ability to meet their need, 
They are, by by definition, your neighbor. And in verse 37, the scribe, the lawyer, realizes he's lost. And he says to Jesus' question, the one who showed him mercy. He realizes it wasn't his religious hero, the priest, that showed mercy and was his neighbor. It wasn't the Levite that day that said, yeah, this guy clearly demonstrated godliness. It was the Samaritan. It was the dreaded Samaritan who proved to be the most godly among all of them because he loved God and he loved his neighbor. He fleshed those things out. And Jesus says in the last part of verse 37, go and do likewise. What do we learn from this? What does this story tell us? I want to maybe just make a couple applications, maybe a couple thoughts, maybe for you to write down as we leave this place and we think about going down the hill even together today. What Jesus is saying is a love of God and a love of neighbor describe the essential lifestyle of a follower of Christ. They are not separable. You can't take those apart. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. Jesus says those are the core of the entire Bible. That is Deuteronomy 6. That is Leviticus chapter 19. That is the heart of God from Genesis chapter 1 all the way here to the point where Jesus is speaking. They are indivisible. Because you love God, you will love your neighbor. In fact, how you love your neighbor says something about your love of God, right? Uh, When I see those things put on display, when I watch you demonstrate your love for people, it says something about your love of God, right? But the inverse is also true, and this is where it gets convicting. Our love of people tells us something about our love of God. If we say we love God, and yet we don't love the people around us, not just the people we like, but the people that we don't like, it actually says something about our love of God. A number of years ago, my wife said, hey, I want to plant a tree in our backyard. And I'm like, great. I'm from the suburbs of Texas. I know absolutely less than zero about trees. But Costco had all these trees on sale. I'm like, how hard can this be? So we go to Costco, and they've got lemon trees, and they got lime trees, and they just got like this whole assortment of trees. I'm like, babe, what do you want? I'll pick it. You, you know, I'll plant it. I'll do whatever it needs to do. She's like, I want a lime tree. I'm like, great. So we buy this like little kind of lime tree. I take it home. We clear out a spot in the backyard. I dig this hole. And if you've ever dug in Fresno hard pan, it is horrible. Oh, awful, right? The first six inches are easy. After that, it's like digging through cement. Well, I, I dig this hole. I put this thing in the ground. I make sure it's got water. And we kind of set it all up for success. And then we come out months, months later, right? This little baby tree that's now beginning to bloom and we're seeing fruit on it. We're like, yes, let's wait a little bit longer. And then we see this tree now uh, becoming mature and it's producing fruit. So we go out now to take this fruit and I walk outside and I grab one of these things and I bring it inside and we cut it open. And behold, what I saw was not a lemon or not a lime, it was a lemon. You see, when I bought that tree, the tag on it said, I'm a lime. As I checked out at Costco, the guy confirmed, yep, I scanned the tag, and it's most definitely a lime. But its fruit told me something very different. It was not a lime, it was indeed a lemon. It professed to be one thing, but on the inside it was another. Its fruit told me something about who it truly was. It is the same, friends, with our love of neighbor. If we say, I love God, 
I go to church. I go to youth group on Wednesday night. I attend my, my small group study with my other believers. I love God. But I don't love anyone else around me. Friends, you may be mistaken about your love for God. Jesus has these so intimately connected that he says you cannot separate them. Our love of God is demonstrated by our love of neighbor. What is maybe, as we would use a phrase that we're familiar with, what we see above the waterline in our behavior towards people that are maybe historically outside of our circle, that is demonstrated by what's underneath the waterline. It demonstrates what in fact is there. And I want you to notice too what Jesus says about neighbor. Neighbor has no qualifications. Not race, not religion, not status. Not whether my peers say that's a cool person or not a cool person or whether I like that individual. Jesus simply says, neighbor, is anybody in your world that you come across that has need? And if you have the ability to help meet that need in any way, be it great or be it small, that person is by definition, according to Jesus, your neighbor. And your love of God should cause you, should cause me to take a step towards that person, not a step away. And lastly, Jesus says loving our neighbor, as Jesus describes, will often involve sacrifice. Loving people this way is not easy. This man had to lay down his credit card and say, hey, I don't owe this guy a dime, but I'm going to pay his bill, whatever that is today and whatever it is tomorrow, and I'm going to go on a journey, and when I come back to the innkeeper, whatever this guy owes you, I will take care of the tab. This man will likely never pay me back. He may not even know who I am. He may still be unconscious by the time I come back and pay his tab, but I'm going to do it anyway. Friends, loving people like this is sacrificial. This is the way that Jesus loved people. As you recall, as we again redefine what it means to love God, these two things are inseparable. And if we're going to go down the hill today, and we're going to go back to our places of life, back to the homes that we live in, back to the spheres of influence in the schools that we attend that we have, whether that's being your family because you're homeschooled, or a large high school where you inter intermix with a bunch of people, whether that's to the Marines or the Army in the, in the year that follows, whether that's grad school or, or, or college or whatever that is for you, everywhere we go, everyone we touch, Jesus says, I expect all of those people to be your neighbor, and we're going to be called to love them sacrificially. Because to love God is, by very definition, to love neighbor. Friends, I wanted to remind us of this truth as we leave and head down the hill. That to love God is to love neighbor. To love neighbor is to love God. Would we commit to this lifestyle? Would we commit to loving Jesus the way that uh, he describes here? And loving him and loving the Lord, but also loving the people for whom he died for. And we're going to get that wrong a lot. We're going to make mistakes along the way. But we get grace for that. We get to repent and come back. But would this be the target? Would this be what we aim for? For those of us that have received such a tremendous amount of grace and understand, again, the weight of our own sin and what the gospel has done on our behalf that has rescued us from the very pit of hell and has allowed us to now have a relationship with the Lord who made us, would we live that out? Would we go down the hill and show people what it looks like to love God and would they say, man, you look different. You act different. There's something about you that intrigues me. I want to hear more about what's going on in your life. And you say, I am so glad you asked. I want to introduce you to my friend. His name's Jesus, and he has wrecked my life, and he wants to wreck yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this weekend, for this time together. 
Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these stories that are just, Father, in some ways so easy to see, so, so easy to understand. But God, they are difficult to obey. I confess that these words for me are a constant struggle to get out of myself, to not be selfish, to, to see others, God, the way that you see them is a daily, constant battle where I have to lay my will and my desires at your feet to love people and to love God the way that you want me to. Father, as we leave now with a sense of a, a shot in the arm, bolstered, encouraged, and had a great time this weekend, would we take that sense down the hill with us? Would we hang on to those memories, those things that we've learned, and would we go apply those? Would we go live out loving God 100% wherever we are? Father, I pray for these students that they would go be light and salt in the world that you're putting them in, that they would make a difference for the kingdom because of the way that they love you and the way that they love those around you. Father, thank you for Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.